Hey, this is Dan Wonderlich from Defining Grace, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. My guest today is Reverend Melissa Cooper, director of LEC Family and the program director for the Life Enrichment Center in Fruitland Park, Florida. Melissa joins us today to talk about her passion for intergenerational ministry, and she gives us practical tips about how to create a worship environment that's inclusive of the entire family. My guest today is Reverend Melissa Cooper, director of LEC Family and the program director for the Life Enrichment Center in Fruitland Park, Florida. Melissa, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Glad to be here. Well, can you tell us a little bit about yourself as well as your ministry and its context? Sure. I am actually a Tennessee girl living in Florida. Um, I'm originally from West Tennessee, uh, and I've been a Methodist my whole life. I come from a long line of Methodists. Uh, My great-great-great-grandfather was a Methodist Episcopal pastor in Alabama in the 1800s. So there's a little bit of the, the family business there, but I'm the first one in the family since him. I lived in Tennessee throughout college and then moved to Boston for seminary. Uh, And from there, I I started my full-time ministry in eastern North Carolina at a Methodist camp there, uh, all the way on the coast of North Carolina. Um, I was there for about two and a half years, and now I've been in the Florida Conference uh, here at the Life Enrichment Center for about five years. The Life Enrichment Center is a Methodist retreat center, and we've been around since about 1979. But until five years ago, we never had a program director. So I was brought in to expand the ministry of the Life Enrichment Center in 2011 with the purpose of developing spiritual programs for uh, people, for adults, for families. And so I actually have been able to create something from the ground up, which is pretty exciting and quite terrifying. So that's been... (laughs) That's been the last five years of my life is is starting out something brand new. Um, and currently, our program ministry has a few different directions, but the most significant one and the most developed one is what we call LEC Family. Um, it's our intergenerational programs and resources. And it's gone in the last five years from a couple of grandparents and me camps in the summer to seven week or weekend programs throughout the year, plus a variety of online resources, workshops, and training for churches. And it's it's growing every day, kind of taking on a life of its own some days. And it's been a really exciting journey to, de- to develop not only at the events, which is what you normally think of as camp and retreat ministry, uh, but a whole ministry that's responding to one of the greatest needs in the church right now. Yeah, absolutely. And you get to do a lot of writing, a lot of curriculum writing, and also a lot of preaching. And so I was wondering if you could talk about your approach to preaching and writing and writing curriculum. If you had any mission statements or guiding principles for your work, what might they be? So um, I always say that I I love to preach, but I wouldn't if I had to do it every week. (laughs) (laughs) And so I get to be that that really helpful person to a lot of my pastor friends uh, and be able to guest preach pretty frequently since I don't have a, a local church setting that I work in every week. My approach to preaching has changed over the years, and I hope it will continue to change. I hope that's something that develops. But in general, I usually refer to my style as narrative. Um, I have an, a degree in English literature and a background in journalism. So I guess from the beginning, I've had a lot of experience with storytelling. And that's actually one of the most powerful things that happens in a camp and retreat setting as well. So I think my preaching reflects that in, in an interesting way. So when I, when I put a sermon together, I try to take my listeners on a narrative journey that not only flows from one point on the next, but builds on each previous point. So yeah. you won't hear me have three separate, I don't do three points in a poem. <laughs> right. Um, cause if I do that, if I, I, I've tried it and it usually ends up sounding like I should have written three different sermons. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I also discovered about six years ago that I'm a manuscript preacher uh, to the extreme. I used to think that manuscripts were kind of a lesser form of homiletics. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot of people, a lot of preachers actually act like that's the case. Um, I get some side eyes sometimes when I talk about preaching from a manuscript. But I had a professor in seminary. Um, he was the dean of our chapel, uh, Dean Hill, and he preached every week at the Boston University Chapel. So kind of a huge, huge place to to be in charge of and to to be preaching at every single week. Brilliant guy. He was so intentional and so thoughtful in his interactions with with all of us as his students. And he's one of those people that you can just see both pastor and professor equally in. I think that's a gift that you don't see very often. Um, but we got into a conversation in a class where I expressed a, a very strong opinion at the time, and I was prone to strong opinions in my early <laughs> 20s, uh, and they weren't always well-researched strong opinions, sure. but I had decided that sermons shouldn't last more than about 15 minutes, and that manuscripts did not leave any room for the Holy Spirit, and I told him as much. Um, I don't know why I had the audacity to say that to not only my professor, uh, not only a clergy person, but the dean of our chapel. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. And being the pastor that he was, Dean Hill actually very kindly responded that he found that for him, about 22 minutes was exactly the right length for most of his sermons. And that he did, in fact, preach from a manuscript and had for many years. So I kind of crawled into a corner at that point after expressing such a strong opinion against such things. But then he continued in a really, really pastoral way. And he said, Melissa, you have to remember that the Holy Spirit is not only at work when you're preaching the sermon, but also when you're preparing it. And you wouldn't want to limit what the Holy Spirit can do, do you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and it was, it was so beautiful the way that he kind of turned my own words around on me and gave me a new way of, of looking at sermon writing, sermon preparation, and and that that all has to do with the delivery in a way that I hadn't thought of before. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of months ago, we had Adam Weber, who pastors the fastest growing Methodist church, and we talked about how he speaks for 18 to 22 minutes, and he uses notes on a music stand, and it's and it's so outside of kind of the stereotype you would imagine when you think of fastest growing church, but it's really I mean, what's authentic for you and, and what works best. And I think that that's where, where most people get hung up with manuscripts is is they they write the way they write and don't learn to write the way they talk. Yeah. And learning to know when to let go of the manuscript too, just because you're a manuscript preacher doesn't mean you're, you're stuck to it either. So that was, that was just such a a real turning point for me. And and you can ask my husband, he'll tell you that my preaching totally took a different turn in, in the best possible way when I started owning the fact that I was a manuscript preacher. Well, one of your great passions in ministry is creating an intergenerational culture within the church. And you've said before the intergenerational culture is about the whole church and not just children. And so can you talk a little bit about how you understand that term and why it's such an important concept for you? Yeah, it's an important concept for me because it's an important concept for the church. I never thought I would be someone whose specialty had to do with things like intergenerational ministry. My, my calling started out in youth ministry. And to make a very long story short, my, my first appointment in rural North Carolina at, at that camp required me, I'll say, to participate in and lead intergenerational camps. And what I ended up seeing, even though I felt like family camp was something we just needed to get through so we could do all of the, the fun stuff, yeah. 
Um, <laughs> what I ended up seeing was something really, really incredible. And it's something you don't see in your average church. I was getting to watch families of three and four generations together at camp playing and worshiping together. And it wasn't this awkward, stressful thing. It was very natural. And I don't think we see that in most of our churches. And so as a result of that experience, uh, result of the job that I was required to do at the time that I came to really, really love, uh, I've actually spent the last five or six years really investigating why that's so special. Why don't we see that in our churches as often? Why, why was there something really unique about that? And it turns out that that actually is the answer to a lot of the issues that we we talk about facing the church today. Hmm. Um, the statistics that goes out a lot is that 40 to 50 percent of our youth group graduates, now that's not the kids that left at confirmation, but those who make it through our youth groups are leaving at graduation and not coming back. And so a lot of people are asking the question, how do we get them back? Which is a really, really great question. But a smaller group of people um, in, in that group is, uh, we're asking the question, why did they leave in the first place? So we do need to think about how we, we regain the engagement of young people, of young adults, um, young families. But we also have to ask the question, if we had them, if we had them as part of the church and they were committed members uh, and participants in our church's programs, why did they leave to begin with? And so I find that to be a more important question, one that drives me a lot more uh, so that we treat more than just the symptoms, getting at the root cause of the issue. And there's a lot of people out there, Holly Allen, Kara Powell and the Fuller Youth Institute, um, John Roberto with Lifelong Faith Associates, um, groups like Vibrant Faith Ministries and Genon Ministries, groups that aren't the ones that you see in the big flashy um, neon signs with with all of the, the resources out there. But those are the folks who are really digging deep into this question to help us figure out what what about a church develops that lifelong faith or that sticky faith, as you might have heard the phrase before. Yeah. And one of the big reasons we actually have discovered that we see such a sharp departure with young adults um, is that we've done too good of a job developing children's and youth ministries. Oh, that's interesting. We've, we've poured more resources into faith formation in our young people in the last 50 years or so than ever before. And we've got to celebrate that. I mean, there was a time where children and youth weren't even thought of uh, individually as, as people in their own right at their own age. And so it's great that we're doing more, but the fact that we have put so much effort into it has ended up creating this huge pendulum swing where we used to think that children's and youth ministry um, were a supplement to their participation in the larger faith community. Um, so they would be, everybody would be together on Sunday morning. That was just sort of an understood thing that you would engage with the whole church at some point. And then we would supplement that with, with a children's time, with a Sunday school class, with a youth group, whatever it might be. And so that supplemented something larger. Uh, but now we've kind of swung to the point where those age level ministries have become for a lot of our young people, the entirety of their faith community. Mm, yeah. The youth group is church. Children's Church is church, uh, and so they don't ever engage with anyone else except for those ministries. We also know that faith formation is best done in community, and even more specifically, we're finding out that it actually necessitates intergenerational community. Uh, I'm a big fan of following the research, because if we don't look at, at trends and look at what sociologists are telling us and, and developmental uh, psychologists, folks who are actually studying the big picture more than just one church uh, or one experience, 
we, we, we get a, a much broader view and, and a better picture of, of the whole whole of what it means to do church and to, to do faith formation than we do if we just look at our own experiences. Um, and what the research actually tells us is that faith growth uh, can't happen when a person only interacts with people of their same age or generation. Mm. Uh, it does, you don't grow deeper in your faith. You'll, you'll stay stagnant at best. And that's true for all ages. And that's what's interesting is a lot of times we we use children as an excuse to talk about intergenerational ministry, but it's true for all of us. So if we as adults no longer engage with people of different generations, then we're not going to grow either. So the kids need us <laughs> and we need them. And so we as adults have to take the responsibility to continue to develop those relationships with the children of our church. Um, whether we're a committed volunteer and spend time with those groups and with those ministries, or if we're just sitting down the pew from them on Sunday morning. Yeah. Uh, so whatever that relationship is, we have to be the ones that seek that out because that's that's not the responsibility of children. That's that's our responsibility as those who are um, theoretically the leaders in our church. And how have you seen this impact the lives of families in sort of maybe a culture where we don't spend as much time, even with the generations inside our own families, maybe, you know, grandkids aren't as connected to grandparents anymore. How how have you seen bringing them together through the retreats that you've put on or, or any of your other programming? How have you seen that bear fruit in the lives of the families? So what's really interesting, um, you're, you're absolutely right in the fact that, that we don't have those connections, even within our nuclear families, much less, in uh, in our broader church areas, we we also I'll see people come to grandparents and meet grandparents who bring their grandkids, and this is the one time they get to talk about faith all year mm. because their kids their their kids don't take their grandkids to church, but they let them come with them to grandparents and me camp, and so camp particularly creates this sort of um, third place to be able to do something that they're not able to do um, on a weekly basis. I had a dad a few years ago bring um, his daughter to dad and me, and uh, he told me, he said, I don't know her. I don't know my daughter wow. because they're always just rushing around, doing, the, doing all the things, dealing with all the kids. And so I always t- talk about our programs as being a chance to not have to worry about the day-to-day stuff where you just get to be with your family. Uh, and so camp is a really interesting way to practice what we hope could happen in the home uh, without the day-to-day worries. And so what we see is that families are willing to try things at camp that they might not just jump into at home. Um, there's a story in, in one of the Sticky Faith books, and I've seen it happen with our folks, that when they went to a camp, for example, they'll do devotions together every morning. And that's something that you have to do at camp. Well, when they come home from camp, the kids are going, can we do devotions every day here like we did at camp? And you'll have parents that have thought, oh, we, we really ought to do something like this, but are afraid to, to go out there, go out on a limb in that way and say, we're going to do family devotions every day because that sometimes can come across as um, imposing or oppressive. Mm-hmm. But it was tried in this other place that is, is fun, um, is, is clearly meant to be a fun place. Uh, then you end up, having a more receptive group, particularly when you're dealing with children, but also adults 
you have a, a more reception of that kind of a, of a practice or implementing something new uh, in your everyday life because you practiced it in a place where you didn't have to worry about all, all the other stuff. So that's one of the really, really exciting ways that we see um, our ability to impact uh, the lives of families is to, to give them those practices that we practice for just a weekend or just a week that they can then take home and end up being a daily practice for them. And that's that's really one of the powerful things about camp ministry, but even local church ministry, to truly be a place that is set apart and and to be a place where it's okay to try out new things, to create a safe space that can then catalyze change in the lives of the family. That's that's a really that's a beautiful picture and a vision for the church, and certainly uh, something that we can all strive to be a part of. Exactly, I think the core of my call. You'd asked about sort of a guiding principle or a, a motto or something like that mission statement. For me, I think that it has become something along the lines of we're better together. Mm. Um, one of the things that I'm so painfully Methodist about is that <laughs> I connectionalism. Yeah. Um, I think there's a powerful theological statement in that. And my ministry is a United Methodist deacon. Our specific calling is to connect the church and the world. And that word connect has become a huge part of how I understand my calling in, in a sense of equipping in a lot of ways. I, I think we... Um, a lot of times think of camps and retreat centers as places where you have mountaintop experiences, where you have very, very dramatic spiritual experiences. And I think that's true. And I think that the core of what we do is an equipping call because what happens, what happens at camp is not necessarily what most impacts the kingdom, what most impacts the kingdom is what happens when people leave, um, is, is how what happened to them, with them, for them, around them in that third place is able to impact how they engage the world, their church, their families, when they aren't in that sort of safe space anymore. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it's, so camps and retreats are kind of this weird, not really church, but not really world. Yeah place that, that that connection starts to happen. When you, you alluded to this earlier, that there seems to be kind of two primary approaches to involving children in worship, and it's either that you send them out the door to their own worship experience or their own classroom experience, uh, or you give them sort of a five-minute children's sermon, and then you expect them to sit and be relatively quiet while the entire rest of the service is geared towards adults. And so I was wondering if you could give us some practical steps that we can take to make worship services more inclusive of all all ages and generations. <laughs> I think that last phrase is so important of, of being inclusive of all ages and generations because we assume that because children aren't there and we're doing things that aren't child focused that this is adult friendly and that's not always true either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um and so it's it's easiest to talk about how we adapt worship in relationship to children because they are the ones who are most often either um, disregarded or excluded from our worship spaces. But what, what we see a lot of times, too, is when we see churches who begin to look at children and say, we want to be inclusive of children, we want to make worship a child-friendly space, they end up adapting worship to, to make it more like worship specifically for children. Mm. Uh, or they'll create family worship. Um, which is designed for parents with kids. It's usually a, a desire to out to reach out to young families to make them feel comfortable in the worship space as as a family together. And these are really great intentions because uh, many churches don't even think about children at all. 
But when you think too much about one group, whether it's children or older adults or millennials or anything in between, when you design a worship service uh, specifically for one group of people, no matter what, you've now left out a whole bunch of other people. Yeah, absolutely. The pendulum can swing too far the other direction. Exactly. And I think this is a lot of what the seeker-sensitive movement of the 90s and early 2000s taught us, that we really do need to be reaching out to specific groups of people and engage them in ways uh, that meets their needs, meets them where they are. Wouldn't disagree with that at all. But what ended up happening is we created very, very segregated worship experiences based Mm. on style preference, personal preference, age group, whatever it might be. We took something that the real recommendation should have been marketing strategy (laughs) Uh, rather than totally changing the nature of worship and not just the format. So when you look at worship services that are the most inclusive of all ages and children specifically, they can be in any style. Style is not the question. And I think people really, really get hung up on style because that's just a personal preference thing. But there's two things that are the most common denominators in all ages inclusive worship. And the first is liturgy. Uh, the more liturgy, the better. Now, specifically, I did not say traditional worship. <laughs> right, right. I said liturgical worship because liturgy can be done in any style. Uh, it just means that the worshiping itself is done primarily by the actual congregation, <laughs> yeah. not in their stead by people on a stage or behind a chancel or behind a pulpit the, the Christian aerobics uh, we joke about with our, <laughs> right. our Catholic and Episcopalian friends, um, those are actually extremely beneficial, especially for children, especially for young people, uh, because they are always included and always engaged in the actual worship experience. And one of the least child-friendly worship experiences, oddly enough, because this is a lot of the times the direction we go to, to include young families, but one of the least child-friendly places is your average contemporary worship service. Mm. In most of these services, worship, and I, I do not mean this disrespectfully, but often it comes across, especially if you're four, um, it's little more than a concert and a speech. Right. And that's not knocking the style. I am fine with contemporary worship. Again, this isn't, that's not the, the conversation that I'm talking about. We're talking about content. If the only people who are doing anything during worship are up front, that's not congregational worship, and that's definitely not kid-friendly. Because mm-hmm. kids, kids want something to do. They need something to latch on to. Um, and kids love, every parent will tell you this. Every parent knows what I'm talking about. Kids love ritual and repetition. What book are you tired of reading every single <laughs> night before you go to bed? Yeah. Kids latch on to things that they do over and over and over. It's the only way they actually get to sleep every night. <laughs> yeah. And so we often ignore our traditions and our, our historical liturgy uh, because we're tired of them. Because adults have said, oh, well, I just do that because that's what we've always done. I don't want my kids to, to suffer through that. Whereas kids really, really will latch on to those things. To be able to sing the doxology every week, to be able to go to the front and take communion, whatever it might be, um, kids love participating and and doing things, especially if it's things they get to do over and over and over. That's so interesting. And that's kind of like, you know, if you, if you pitch the idea of being an acolyte to a kid who's never been to church 
it probably sounds really weird. Like we want you to put on this weird sort of angel costume and then we want you to, I mean, kids like playing with fire, but we want you to walk in front of a large group of people and, and do this very quiet sort of traditional thing. A kid's probably going to like turn their nose up at you, but you talk to the kids who are acolytes and they absolutely love it. They do. They do. And that brings up the second piece, the second common denominator of really, really good um, all ages inclusive worship is interpretation. And so when you're talking about that acolyte, if you explain to them what they're doing, why it's important. I remember when I went through acolyte training, I, I moved when I was, I think, 11 years old. And so I went through acolyte training at two different churches. And with the first church, they just told us what to do. You're going to walk up here. You're going to light this candle. You're going to sit here, which at that church, you sat on the chancel next <laughs> to the preacher the whole service. Yeah. Um, and so I, I enjoyed it then too, because I just, I was one of those weird kids that thought that kind of thing was fun, but there wasn't a lot of interpretation done of why we were doing what we were doing. And then the next church, when we moved, I went through another set of acolyte training, and we had an entirely different way of training. They talked about the, the importance of the candles, what their purpose was, what the reason that we were coming in with the pastors the way that we were, and, and things like that. And I think that makes a big difference. And this is where the all ages part really comes into play when you're talking about parts of worship, because it even answers some of those issues that the seeker-sensitive folks tried to address of how a lot of times what came out of that is that rituals and traditions were eliminated. Language was changed, uh, things that were more traditional sounding because people won't know what that means or people won't know how or why they're doing that or that's just Christianese. Yeah. <laughs> I remember hearing that phrase a lot. And I couldn't agree more because expecting everyone who comes through our doors to know what a, what a narthex is or to say the Apostles' Creed from memory or to know what it means to take communion by intinction or even what it means to take communion, that's not a reasonable expectation to have of every person who comes through our door. And really, we want people to come through our doors who don't know those things, right? And so what ended up happening is we ended up eliminating those things. And that's how we get worship that's nothing but a concert and a speech. Right, exactly. And the churches who do this well, the ones who are really able to reach all ages, they don't stop speaking the language or practicing the traditions. They just provide interpretation. And so sometimes that's a verbal uh, from the worship leadership. Sometimes it's in a bulletin. Now, I'm a big fan of, of going green. I'm a big fan of, of taking paper out of as many things as we can. But a bulletin is actually still a really important tool for kids and for adults if it's used well, um, because it helps parents uh, or adults who are with kids um, sort of do that whole finger pointing as they do when they teach kids to read to say, this is where we are. This is what we're going to do. Can you find this hymn in the hymnal for me? It gives them a place to, to be looking forward to what's coming um, and to know what's going on at each step of the way. That's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, and, and well, and, and it's also being able to explain what those things are. So sometimes it's if, well, one of my favorite stories, and this is a true story from when I was a kid, is um, there was always in our bulletin, we always sang this one song every week right after the Apostles' Creed. And I never understood. I knew the song. I enjoyed the song. But there was a woman who was always supposed to sing it, and her name was Gloria Patri. <laughs> <laughs> and I never knew why she wasn't there to sing her song. <laughs> Later on, I discovered that that was the name of the song that we were singing, but no one explained that to me. Yeah. And so it's just a matter of, of interpretation that way. 
for kids. Uh, it might actually be a special box or bin of items that helps guide them through the worship on their level. And one of the things that I've seen done is uh, using icons or colors to match uh, an item that a kid might have to use during worship in the bulletin. So maybe there's a little cross next to a prayer time, and in the kid's box, they have a hand cross, and it'll instruct them to hold this cross while you're praying and and do things like that to give them a tactile experience and connect it to the adult bulletin. They don't necessarily have to have a separate bulletin just for kids, but to connect them to what the adults are doing as well, rather than a worship service that's totally designed around them to give them the tools that they need at their level within the worship that everybody else is is participating in. Well, let's shift to specifically talk about the sermon, because whether or not you have the rest of the service, hopefully the rest of the service is engaging. Um, <laughs> we come to this 20 to 45 minute block in the service, and I will admit that whenever I was preaching, I gave zero thought, mm-hmm. you know, to kids. And I certainly know there are, you know, preachers out there who maybe give zero thought to senior citizens. You know, they're sort of preaching at the uh, the parent level or the young adult level or, or whatever it is that they're wanting, the, the age level that they either view themselves, feel they understand the best or want to grow in the church. So h- how do you how do you approach a sermon that's accessible to a wider range of folks? It's a really great question, and it's a question I I get asked regularly because I think pastors are terrified of the idea of bringing kids back into worship if they haven't <laughs> had them there. <laughs> yeah. Because there is this idea of of how do I how do I reach everybody? Uh, how do I really really reach everybody? And I think that's a good question to ask. And there's two elements I think of the sermon that have to be considered to to really evaluate how you do that in your context because it's different in every context. But the first part of the sermon is thinking about the content. And I think that's what makes us nervous is, is what do I say? Yeah. <laughs> what do I say that is going to meet, meet multiple age groups? And I think a lot of times this whole conversation, because I, I have so many people that will ask me about the intergenerational worship conversation, is it's, it's not necessarily about the content of the service itself, but the, it gets back to the nature and purpose of worship. I find myself a lot of times having this conversation with people to say, well, what, what are you there to do anyway? And they have to sit and think about it because they have never fully considered why we have worship. Often we forget that it's an action that people are supposed to do. It's like we talked about. We don't want just the, the people on the stage that are the only ones that are participating in anything. Um, and when we think about the action of the people, of the gathered body, the purpose of the sermon within that is to inspire them to that action. And so are we using the sermon as a teaching time instead of a preaching time? Mm-hmm. Is it an in-depth Bible study or are we actually taking scripture and providing an interpretation and exegesis that inspires and that um, asks for a response of some sort? And I feel like if we as pastors can't invite responses to the gospel for all ages, if we can't use our preaching to include people of all ages in God's work in some way, then we've missed the gospel. Mm. Because Jesus is very, very clear that we all have something to offer, um, that we all are allowed to come to uh, the foot of the cross, to come to to sit in his, his lap and sit next to him and hear from him. And so it doesn't mean that every teaching topic is appropriate for all ages. You don't necessarily teach topically to all ages. 
and not necessarily every preaching topic is entirely um, helpful to all ages either, but the Sunday message is something that has historically been the message for the whole gathered body. Um, This is a new thing that we have sent kids out. This is a fairly new concept, and I hope that we haven't drifted so far that we can't remember how to speak to all of our people and to know that even children have something to offer in worship and that we as pastors get to invite them to respond in that way. The second part of it, and this is what's probably more helpful to think about, is the context. Um, Because no matter how good the content is, the context is what allows it to be absorbed well. When we talk about good preaching, good delivery, things like that. And the the thing that I I will speak to all of our preachers and, and release you from is that your sermon is not necessarily going to engage kids, and that's okay. (laughs) It's not about meeting them exactly where they are. It's not about speaking directly to them because that's where we get dangerously into kids-specific worship, and that's not necessarily what we're looking for. So it's okay if you're not uh, you're not doing a puppet show every week. It's okay <laughs> if you're not you know using a nursery rhyme every week. That's okay. It doesn't mean that you might not want to use some of those uh, elements. Maybe not puppets. I don't know. We may not be there anymore. Um, but think about how you're delivering it in the sense of what what surrounds it. So thinking about the placement of the sermon in. Uh, in the worship service. I'm actually, particularly when we're talking about engaging kids, I'm a big fan of the more traditional liturgy that puts the sermon towards the front of the service um, because it's going to be easier for a kid who has a small attention span to get through that early and then have things to, that, that they can participate in as the, the service goes on. Mm, that's interesting. If they've already been through all of the other liturgy and all that's left is to sit through the sermon... <laughs> They're going to learn. Yeah. <laughs> That's hard. That's really hard. Um, and so some of it is acknowledging child development and realizing that we're, we're more able to start off with the harder part. And then, cause then we get to participate in all of these other things. Um, so that's, that's one just really, really simple shift is, is to move that back that way. I also love it because it, it supports the idea that worship is a response to the message. And so you have all of this time to, to craft responses to the message that you've given through music, through offering, through um, liturgy of a variety of kinds. There's other ways that, again, don't totally disrupt the way that you're preparing your sermon or constructing worship. One, there's a great book out there called Parenting in the Pew, and it's all about how to help parents guide their kids through worship. One of the things they talk about is giving parents keywords that you know you're going to come back to in worship and inviting the kids to squeeze their parents' hand anytime they hear that keyword. So they're listening so that they can can participate in that way. And that way parents can know that their kids are listening too, so they better be listening too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of the other things, a friend of mine, um, Sarah Miller at Tuscawilla UMC in Castleberry, Florida, she developed a thing she called Sermon Bingo last year during the Advent and Christmas seasons. And she created a bingo card from her sermon. And so she had all of these different words that she knew she was going to say. And as kids came in, they were given bingo cards. And so they were allowed to, as they heard those words preached in the sermon, cross them off. And as soon as they got bingo right in the middle of her sermon, they could jump up and yell it. Oh, that's awesome. That's really cool. And so for six weeks, for six weeks, every child, every child in that church 
listen to every word of every sermon. I don't know how many preachers <laughs> <laughs> can claim that kind of a record. Wow. That's uh, cool. And, and so that's not something you'd want to do every single week, but that's a fun, you know, short-term thing to bring in there. One of the other favorite things I have is to give kids, sometimes we'll have separate spaces for kids to go during during the sermon or during the worship service. I like when it's just during the sermon because then they can participate with their family in the rest of the worship. There's a, a church that has a separate sort of area towards the front, actually, and they have a space for kids to go with things like Play-Doh and crayons and things that they can color with, all, all quiet things. And they have the sermon towards the beginning. So the kids go over there during the sermon and they create, they do whatever they want. They can listen if they want to. They're very close to the pastor actually while they're, they're doing this. But the first thing that they do after the sermon is the offering. And so for the kids to then move from the play space back to the seats with their parents, they're the first ones who offer. And so they take whatever they've created during the sermon and place it on the altar and then go back to sit with their parents. That's a great idea. That's really cool. It's really cool. And again, it engages them in the liturgy. So those are just some, just a couple little, little things that again, none of those things require a drastic change in how you preach or what you preach. It just creates a better context for that engagement. Well, and I know that this conversation is right up the alley of some of our listeners. I can almost just feel right now some people like shouting at their iPhone or Android right now saying, yes, yes, this, uh, yes, I want more of this. And uh, you actually have are putting together a new conference to create a space to have these kinds of conversations and to share these kinds of ideas. It's called Intergenerate. It's planned for June 2017. Uh, what would you like to share about the conference and, and how can interested listeners get more information? Yeah, um, Intergenerate is a really exciting thing that I am so honored to be a part of. Um, it's a group of folks, actually, a lot of those that I named earlier as being real pioneers in the area of the intergenerational church, like Don Roberto, Holly Allen. Um, they've come together uh, with the in Institute for Christian Spirituality at Lipscomb University in Nashville and Gen On Ministries. And those are our two big sponsors. And we're going to create what seems to be the first conference that truly addresses the entirety of the intergenerational church, not just family ministry, not just worship, not to promote a specific method or a model of doing this, but to really talk about the need for intergenerational faith formation and how that's best done. And one of the most significant things that makes this conference different is that it's not just a bunch of pastors and church staff leading it. Um, we're actually including academics sociologists, people who actually study this stuff and how faith is formed and all of the stuff that undergirds everything else that we do um, so that we who are practitioners can come together with the people who really study what we're doing and help us figure out how to do what we're doing better. Um, so they can actually go to intergenerateconference.com um, or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash intergenerate. And there isn't a ton of information out there yet other than things like dates. We've got our keynote speakers up. There are so many plans in the works. And you can see on the website our keynote speakers. Read about the concept of the conference itself. 
And you can see a list of the incredible team of people um, from the U.S. and Canada who are helping to put together this event. And that'll be June 25th through the 27th at Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee. That's cool. Well, and this episode will come out just a little over a week before the start of Advent. And you direct a really cool project called Picture Advent as part of LEC Family. So what would you like to share about this experience? And and if we have listeners or congregations that want to get involved, uh, how can they jump in over this next week? Yeah. Um, so picture advent was this weird, uh, thing that developed from a very short conversation of a friend saying, Hey, you want to put some devotions together and send them out by email. And what ended up happening is we ended up having 600 people from more than 30 states sign up for our very first one. And since then we've had over 2000 people participate from all over the world. And, uh, all of our resources are free of charge. All of the people who write for us are people who are pastors and lay people and church staff who uh, do it from the goodness of their own heart because they love helping and providing resources for individuals, for families. We have at-home family activities as well as children's activities, youth activities, preaching and worship resources. Um, The core of it all are our daily devotions that come by email, and they're also posted each day as a blog Um, And the writers of the devotions and the resources come from all over the country and from a variety of denominations. So it's really cool to see how many people are willing to offer that to this project. Um, And I think that's part of the reason people have loved it so much, because it's not just one voice. A lot of your devotion books come from either one voice or at least even one publishing house or whatever it might be. And when you get all of these different voices independently um, sharing their faith and their love for the church— uh, it's just incredible to see how it comes together every year. That's awesome. You can go to pictureadvent.com and sign up for the daily devotions and check out all of the resources, which are hopefully by by this time out on the website. Um, but if you've been a little uh, late on your Advent planning, we've got you covered. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but if you're already ready for Advent, you can also take a look at what's coming up for Lent because there will also be a picture Lent again this year. And uh, before we let you go, are there any books or resources that you'd like to share with our listeners? If you really want to dig into the idea of the intergenerational church, I, I can't recommend anything more than the book Intergenerational Christian Formation. It is what I call the Bible of intergenerational ministry. It really gets into the why of it. It gets into some of the how of it and and guides you through how you might vision taking your church on the, the journey to become more intergenerational. Um, there's also really great resources out there from groups like Vibrant Faith Ministries. They have great webinars that help you look at some of the research and see how that relates to your church. Anything from Lifelong Faith Associates is just fabulous. The best curriculum and resources out there are actually from a group called Gen On Ministries. Um, they're not flashy. They're not um, you know complicated, and that's why I think they are so good and so successful when people use them. And of course, please be sure to check out lecfamily.org where we collect a lot of that stuff and you can can reach a lot of those organizations through our website as well. Well, and that leads us into our final question for you. If folks out there want to get in touch with you or follow the work that you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? They can uh, go to lecfamily.org, check out what we're doing there and follow us at LEC Family on Facebook as well. We're on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all of that. We keep up our Facebook the most uh, to see what we're doing, to see some of the the research we're finding, to share a little bit of, of what's going on out there in family ministry and intergenerational ministry in general. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much, Dan. It was good to be with you. 
Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play Music, or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they're live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.